So we get up to the target that Bradley maneuvered into position and there's like this tank round just flies out of nowhere. And then you start to hear like tink, 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 and the ramp goes down and we peel out and I've ran towards the target building. And as I like clear all the stuff, there's smoke and stuff. And I just get this weird feeling like not everybody's with me. So I kind of like take a knee and I'm like waiting. Nobody's running by me and I'm realizing you hear like snap, snap, snap. And then all of a sudden, like I get the squeeze and it's Mark behind me. So we go up to the front door. So I ran up, kicked it open and it propels me f past the first two rooms. I'm like on my gun the whole time and I just give the going upstairs. And as me and Chucky get to the top of the stairs, this machine gun fire just comes in, dude. And it comes in heavy. You could tell it was really close. And all of a sudden you hear man down, like dire man down. And then he goes, we need to form it down here now. So I just, it's like three bounds down the stairs and I get down to the stairwell. As we're coming down, I go to grab Mark and another bunch of machine gun fire comes down through there. So I kind of like duck out of the way and Mark is, dude, he's down. And Nick, our EOD guys, returning fire. I catch Nick's eye. It looked like sheer terror, um, the look that he gave me. So grab Mark and I drug him around that little alcove and I just started cutting Mark's gear off. Um, you know, it was pretty apparent that he took one round right to the teeth. I could see the whole left side was, um, was already bruising. You could see it all on his cheek. Um, his face was like white and Mark was tan. I get the gear off and dude, I'm just doing like a quick assessment. And dude, there's nothing, man. I was like, we need a Kazovac now. It's like, all right, it's outside. So I go and I sling Mark up on there and I start carrying him, dude. And it, It's heavy, you know what I mean? Globalrecon.net, giving you the matter of facts. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Hendricks. I am on with former U.S. Navy SEAL Chris Osman. Uh, Chris, how's it going, brother? Great, man. How you doing today? I'm all right. Um... It's it's cool to have you on, Chris. Uh, you've had an interesting career in the military, uh, served in in two different uh, branches. Um, so let, let, let's start with what what motivated you to join the uh, military. You know, my I grew up in a military family. I'm from San Diego. My father served. My uncles all were in the military, and you know, I just thought it was the thing to do. And since I was a young kid, I've always wanted to be in the military. Just fascinated by it. And you know, I grew up around it and saw the movies. You know, read a bunch of books and things like that as a kid. And I just knew it was always, you know, it was just something I was always going to do. So that's why I wanted to do it. And, and how'd you end up uh, joining? Because you kind of had an, a unique experience <laughs> getting in there. Yeah. So originally, uh, so my entire childhood, you know, I was like, I want to be in the Navy, 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 Navy. And, you know, of course, you know, back then it was just like Navy SEALs and, you know, they didn't have all the press they have now. But, you know, I'm fortunate enough that, that I grew up in San Diego. I had a father that was in the military. So he used to take me down to the SEAL team base. Um, he knew a bunch of SEALs because they had, you know, been on his submarines. And my father was the command master chief. So he was the chief of the boat. So he had a lot of pool. And then, you know, I got to go down and take tours and do all kinds of stuff with a couple of friends of mine. 
And I was just hooked on it. It's, you know, I was like, that's what I want to do. And I looked up to those guys, man, you know, the blue and gold shirts back in the day, right? The jungle boots with the, the socks rolled down over the top and, yeah. um, you know, the, the, the green covers, I just thought it was just, they were like superheroes, man, like walking giants. Right. And, but you know, that never, that, you know, that just, you know, I'm a typical kid and kind of all over the place, but really wasn't focused And the neighborhood I grew up in. Yeah. I grew up in Southeast San Diego off of, uh, you know, kind of a place called skyline drive. So, um, you know, my brother went to Morris High School. It's kind of a, you know, uh, a rough neighborhood, if you will, you know, especially for a white kid. And that's where I kind of developed my attitude of just not really taking any shit off anybody. And so we were constantly getting into trouble, constantly fighting, always around a lot of trouble. And, you know, I developed a, um, you know, a little criminal record, a juvenile criminal record, and experimented with drugs and did all that stuff. So when I went to go join the Navy, you know, the Navy recruiter was like, yo, man, this isn't for you. If you join the Navy, you're going to get involved with the wrong element and you should join the Marine Corps instead. And I was just like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> right? Cause I, cause I grew up in a Navy family. Right. And he goes, no man, the Marine Corps is going to give you the discipline you need. So I was, so I agreed to it. And you know, he's like, and I was like, are you sure, man? He goes, yeah, look, think about it. You have to spend the same four years. So does it, so do you want to become a Marine and actually like do some training and, and, and learn something about the military and learn something about yourself where he goes, you know, you're just going to be a shithead in the fleet Navy, you know, chip and paint doing nothing. And I was like, Hmm. All right. So, so literally like get up out of his, out of his, the chair in his office, we walk next door and he introduces me to uh, the Marine recruiter, a guy named Sergeant Peters from New York, who I'll never forget. And, uh, they were like laughing when I was like, Oh yeah, I got a you know criminal record and I have drug use. And they're like, Oh dude, Marine Corps will take you, man. Sit down. <laughs> um you know it's unique so that's how i ended up in the marine corps um you know and, and i'm basically like hey man i you know I, I i paid for my uh my sins as a juvenile there i could tell you that um but it was but it was great man i, I loved the experience it was cool right on so you spent how many years in the marine corps before you uh transitioned into the navy i was in the marine corps for four years uh and i was artillery um and during that time I screened for uh, the, the battalion recon that we had, and back then it wasn't a, a primary MOS like it is now. So they considered that a secondary MOS, but in order to get into reconnaissance, you had to either have a, an O3, like a grunt background, be motor T, or uh, a communicator, and I was artillery. So I took the screening test. I passed everything. I had recommendations from, from my chain of command, but the Marine Corps um, just wouldn't let me do it. They're like, hey, man, sorry, you're, you don't have the right – um, primary MOS. And so in my four years, um, was coming to an end. I called the Navy recruiter in Oceanside. Uh, and I asked him if I could leave the, the Marine Corps and join the Navy to go to buds. And he was like, yeah, man, I just did it for a staff sergeant that left uh, force recon. He goes, so I know exactly how to do it. And I mean, literally that day, as soon as I got off man, I was in my car in his office and spent the next, um, I want to say it was like four and a half months, you know, doing the paperwork, taking the ASVAB test, doing the medical screening. I did all that stuff so I could transition and leave the Marine Corps and join the Navy on the same day. And that's what I did. And that's a pretty unique experience to have. And, and you knew as a kid, you wanted to be a SEAL, right? There was no question about it. There was no question about it, man. I had, uh, you know, the camouflage bedspread. My mom actually made me camouflage curtains for the room. I, my walls were, my walls were covered in like all the recruiting posters and, and all the crazy shit. Yeah. I was, 
really, really into it, but not enough. But, you know, all that being surrounded by that still, it wasn't enough motivation to keep me out of trouble. Right. It was just like one of those things of like, you know, kids are kids are going to do what they're going to do. You know, not really looking too far into the future. Well, right. It's it. You know, it happens to a lot of people. Um, and, and look, some people pick it up quicker than others. But, you know, some people just have to learn the hard way, so to speak, you know? Yeah, I definitely <laughs> I definitely took the hard route. <laughs> okay, so you got out of the Marine Corps, joined the Navy same day. And then did you go straight into uh, BUDS or how'd that work out for you? Um, so I went to the uh, – yeah, I swore into the Navy. So basically that same day I drove over to a uh, transitioning they called it uh, uh, transitional processing barracks, or whatever. And I checked in, and they're like, "Hey, where's your ID card?" I'm like, "No, I literally just joined the Navy like an hour ago." So, you know, so I literally go over to uh, personnel. I get an ID card. They start filling out, you know, all the paperwork. And then I waited there. You know, we just PT'd every day and just swam and you know did that whole deal for about five or six weeks. And then then the actual orders came where I was supposed to report to, to buds. And so that day, you know, me and a a buddy of mine jumped in the car and drove across the bridge to Coronado, um, from 32nd street and, um, you know, checked in that day and that was it, you know? And, uh, so then we classed up with, uh, class 213 and I went through first phase and hell week with them and, and about three weeks of second phase when I had, I got a leg injury um, they call it ITB. Um, I, this nickname, I tried buds cause there's a lot of people who get it. Um, and their leg and their, and their leg gets fucked up and then, you know, they end up not making it, but it's just a, an overuse injury and, um, it just hurts like hell. But I ended up losing about 30% mobility in my right leg. And I had a, um, a hip to ankle, uh, like they call it a soft cast where just Velcro's on. And I was on that with crutches for about, I want to say four weeks. Then I was in physical therapy and then healing up, but I was there. Um, I was a double roll, what they call a double rollback. So I, I skipped um, a full class and then waited for class 215. So I was in um, physical therapy for about four months. Um, and then I reclassed up with class 215 and finished. But my total time there at Buds was, was about 10 months. So uh, this, this is it's kind of an interesting concept. Like, you know, I've talked to different SEALs and got, you'll hear these stories where guys got injuries and had to wait for the next class or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. But it isn't, doesn't that really kind of set you back because you go into this uh, in really good shape? You know, you're, you're going through BUDS itself and, you, you know, you did Hell Week and all that. So obviously you're at the top of your game physically. You know, then having a rehab for a couple of months, does, is that like really a hard process to kind of get back in, into that, that shape? It is because, you know, you're constantly getting crushed on a daily basis, right? And there's a schedule and your body gets used to it. You start to get stronger and stronger. And then all of a sudden it's, you know, you're dropping anchor at full speed and there's no more PTs. You're just doing physical therapy. So, you know, um, but you're still there at Bud. You still have to do inspections and this, the, the daily grind of, of PTRR, um, is is horrible man like the motivation just gets drained out of you you just you know it just sucks because you're not progressing you're just you know you're marking time every single day and then you see guys that you were in class with go to second phase and finish you see you know they go to third phase they graduate and then you're like you know i remember selling 
I ran the like um, the t-shirt hat and sticker booth, you know, there on the grinder when my class, my original class graduated. So I'm like, they're coming over and they're like, oh man, stay, stay motivated, bro. And then like, Hey, can I get a, a sweatshirt for my dad? So you're like <laughs> selling them shit. You know what I mean? I'm standing there just selling them, you know, memorabilia and fucking hats and t-shirts and swag to the families and watching them knowing that I'm not, dude, and I wasn't even in a class yet. Right. right. So I, I wasn't even in class 215 yet. So just like it was just absolutely like demotivating as hell. Yeah, I could imagine. I mean, you know, going through a selection is tough enough once, you know, and then going through it, getting hurt, having to wait and then go through it again. Uh, but, you know, it, I guess that's common amongst um, guys going through buds, at least from stories that you hear or books that you read. And, um, you know, I, I think kind of a, a a moment that anybody in the audience who's listening who's thinking about going to buds or whatever mm-hmm. is to um you know not get injured before you get there you know uh i i think that's kind of a good takeaway yeah but I, you know i tell people all the time to not put themselves through buds before they try to go to buds right so a lot of a lot of guys are like hey i take cold showers i do this i do that and they and they try to um you know put themselves to to you know they're overtraining right because right. you're never you're never going to be able to do what that that course demands of you no you know you're not just going to walk out and be like yeah I know what I'm going to do today I'm going to be a bud student and you cannot do that to yourself right no one right so you the only way to experience it is to experience it but if you've are if you're overtraining you're not eating right you're not you know following some type of some type of regime and a discipline then you're you're you know you're fucking yourself up long before you get there so if you right. check in and you already have injuries then the chances of you graduating go down dr- dramatically because you know any weakness is going to be exposed in that program so if you already are nursing a foot injury an ankle injury or shoulder you know something like that or it's going to be it, it will manifest itself within you know 30 to 40 days of that increased uh, tempo on your body. You're just going to get smashed, you know? Yeah. So what, so now let's fast forward a little bit. You know, you, you get into the SEAL teams. Which team did you end up on? I was on SEAL Team 3 in Coronado, California. Okay. And then you were also a sniper, right? I was, um, but not in my first platoon. Um because you're just a new guy, so you don't get all the, you don't get any cool classes in schools and shit. You're just there to learn, and you know, as I say, you're there to suit up, show up, and shut the fuck up. That's pretty <laughs> much the, the <laughs> that's pretty much the drill, you know. And to uh, to put out and you know earn your trident. Because when I you know when I went through that, you know, you still had to do an equipment. Re- you had to do a um, a uh, a review board. And the Trident Review Board, you still had to do STT at the time, SEAL Tactical Training. They changed it to SEAL Qualification Training. So now the guys check in, they're already static line and free fall qualified, and they already have their Tridents when they check in. When I went through BUDS and since the early days, you know, you checked in, and the only thing you had was your five jump wings from airborne school. So we would leave, we would graduate buds, and the buds graduation was like the big deal, right? Where all the family and shit came out. Uh, now it's the SQT graduation where everybody, you know, that's the big deal. But so we would leave buds, and we would go to Fort Benning, Georgia. So that's where I went through static line jump school, 
And then from there, we kind of scattered off to our team. So the East Coast guys went to their teams, West Coast guys, you know, SDV, whatever. So when we checked in to the team, you know, you're just there with, you know, a few ribbons and your your lead sled wings, right? So everybody knows you're a new guy. And then you have to wait for a, a slot for STT. And then we went through SEAL tactical training and, you know, together as a group, obviously. And then after that, you still waited another four to five months to take your review board. And, you know, so you basically just study your ass off and do whatever, you know, work around the different departments of the command and learn all the, you know, the different stuff that you can. And we would have like the flashcards. We'd just be studying and studying, studying. So then that oral review board, you go in there and it's all the E7s and above at the command. And that you just sit down in a room and they're all in there, man check it like i've never been so nervous to be honest with you and they just start and they start rapid firing questions at you and you had to know everything about web i mean it was and it was you know when you'd ask hey what are we studying for and like from the day you checked into buds until the day you walk in that room and everything in between so Uh so they would be ripping off just random ass fucking questions you know and you know then there was you know guys that would have to they would dump parts of weapons out and they're like okay got you know there's seven weapons in there you have 10 minutes to assemble and do a, a weapons check. And then you'd be in there just fucking stressed out, you know, rods yeah. and spr- rods and springs flying grips and shit. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, just trying to, and then you, you know, you do that process and then they, and they, they kind of, you know, give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Um, you know, there are guys who have made it that far and never became seals because they just weren't confident or the, you know, just didn't have that final thing. I guess the command was looking for, but there's guys who definitely made it that far and gotten a thumbs down and never became seals. Right. I, I guess you got to be able to kind of put it all together. Um, yeah. You know, on yeah. Demand, yeah. Yeah. Which is not like that now. Obviously, you know, they go through buds, static line, free fall, SQT, cold weather training, and then when they check in, they're full. They're full fledged frogmen. You know what I mean? Right. So. Right. Right on. And I know seals. You know, the inception was uh, they, well. They have a history through World War Two, but when they were officially commissioned, uh, they were commissioned pretty much alongside Green Berets. And um, you know, you you guys are, are similar in, in a way of kind of the jack of all trades uh, in your skill sets. Um, so, what, what what specifically was your role? Can you talk about that? Yeah, so uh, when I checked into the command, and this is in, um, I want to say the summer of 1998 is when I checked into uh, SEAL Team 3. So in, in those years, in those days, the, the teams all had specialized in uh, a certain area of operation, right? So Team 3 was Middle East Desert Warfare, right? So that's all we did was Desert Warfare. Um, team SEAL Team 1 was Jungle because they were commissioned in 1962 and it was seal team one and seal team two doing uh all the work in vietnam back then right yeah so they so they stuck to their roots with the jungle warfare seal team five was uh mountain and cold weather so they handled like the korea peninsula and places like that so each team specialized in in a specific region and so all we did man was desert warfare and so on 9 11 you know i was in uh I was up at Camp Pendleton going, I was just finishing uh, Marine Corps Scout Sniper School. But so that's how I ended up in 
Afghanistan literally like six or seven days after 9-11 was when I deployed. So I had already done one deployment in 1999-2000 uh, timeframe, and when we were working then, SEAL Team 3 and SEAL Team 8 were really the only ones that were kind of doing anything. Um, SEAL Team 4 in South America was, was doing a little bit of stuff, but we were the, the primary uh, team that was operating just because of our area of operations. So we were doing most of all the ship takedowns. So when Saddam was still in power, they were always you know smuggling drugs, smuggling cash, smuggling oil, and violating all the UN sanctions. So we were always – that was our thing, man. We would deploy. We'd be over, overseas and be, be doing uh, ship takedowns, and that's where I really like kind of cut my – cut my teeth, so to speak, in special operations was doing all those uh, VBSS missions. Yeah, and, and was that – and that's working as like in a, in a – specifically in a counterterrorism type of role? Well, it's not so much counterterrorism because you know they're not – they weren't terrorists and they weren't you know holding hostages. So it's not like you're you know rescuing a hostage or right. anything like that. So this is – these are just missions – that they classify as operations other than war, and all of them were, you know, highly classified at the time. So it never made the media. Um, um, you know, there was nothing. There was nobody knew about it. We were just, you know, kind of operating in the shadows, so to speak. But it wasn't what people would consider counterterrorism missions, where we were going in to rescue anybody. They were literally, you know, ships that were up in uh, the waterways between Kuwait and Iraq, and they were loaded down with illegal cargo and as they would leave and try to make a run for it uh when they breached like international waters that's when we would um do a ship assault and then we would take the ships down and then we capture capture the whole crew you know and then we would and then the u.s government would take uh the ship and its cargo and then we would be off like long like before the sun came up we were gone it, that was it Right, and you're, you said you deployed in 2000. Um, mm -hmm. Would that have been around the time that the, uh, the USS Cole was hit? No, I was, I was in San Diego when uh, the, the Cole was hit. Okay. Yep. I was already back. So, and, then I, and then when I came back, uh, we were off, I want to say about <clears> – <throat> Maybe about two weeks, like 14, 15 days, something like that. And then we were already back in another platoon getting our, you know, is now, um, you know, uh, you know, I had already had, you know, one deployment under my belt. So, you know, we call each other, you know, yeah, we're one platoon wonders. And, you know, so then we we're getting the new guys in and then now we start doing our workup and it was, you know, like a 13 month workup. And then once we had finished that workup and we were um, ready to, to to deploy, that's when we started going to school. So some guys would go off to free fall school. Some guys would go to advanced comm school. Um, I went to uh, sniper school, which I thought was cool. And so I went through uh, the 10 week course up at Camp Pendleton. So I did, I did that, the, um, the Marine Corps scout sniper program up there at Camp Pendleton. Which is interesting because you were in the Marine Corps, then you got out. <laughs> join the navy and go back there and and does that work just basically you know the, a slot was open for scout sniper school so that's where you went it was yeah yep and, the, and the, at the time the seal team had their own program but there the uh there was there was no classes going on then and i and i said well i'll just do the marine corps one and then the some of the guys that were running 
you know, operations that help you with like the, the chits for all the schools and stuff like that. They're like, dude, are you crazy, man? That's that's their selection process. You're going to go up there and just get beat down for 10 weeks and, and for what? And I'm like, well, I was in the Marine Corps, man, and I've always wanted to do it, so why not? And so I went up there and did it. Awesome. Yeah. Which was cool, though. It was a lot different, you know, being in the Navy because they had to follow, you know, the Marine Corps' um, you know, way of life, so to speak. So it kind of – I brought a, I brought a little element of, you know – just put out and chill. I wasn't as wound up as some of the guys because, you know, you got to think, man, they're Lance corporals and corporals and that's their selection. You know what I mean? To become a scout sniper, that's their school. They've been waiting for years to go to. And, you know, I didn't have the same mentality, you know, um, I was just there to train and to learn, um, and to try to get my quals a sniper as a unique, it was good. I thought it was great, man. So be, going to Afghanistan, like, literally right after the towers fell i mean that's pretty historic deployment mm-hmm. can you talk about that at all like any you know maybe yeah. something that stuck out to you or yeah so um you know about two days i will say yeah two days uh before we were to, set to graduate so we were just you know at the schoolhouse up there um basically just turning in all of our equipment and stuff and we you know the class is told about the 9-11 right it, this is 9-11 it's the morning of and, he, and they're like hey man have you guys heard what's going on and we're like nope so um they're giving us information about the planes hit the towers are being hijacked and all this other stuff at that time the school um staff ncoic comes in and goes hey osman you got a phone call so i go in there and i answer the phone and they're like hey he's just petty officer and i'm like i'm like yes sir and he's like you've been recalled and then the, I'm like, Roger that. And then he hangs the phone up. So with all of our training and all those things, there's like these, these protocols, you know, when you get recalled. So I just walked in and I was like, Hey guys, thanks a lot. I'm out of here. Started packing up all my shit. And they're like, what are you doing, man? You can't just leave like that. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm out. And they're like, no, you have to, you know, and of course it's Marine Corps. Right. And they don't, they don't have anything like that or have ever experienced anything like that. So they're like, wait a minute, man, you have to turn in your, your barracks key, um, you have to turn in your linens, you know, you have to have your room signed off on, you got a, this, you got a, that. I'm like, guys, I'm not doing any of that shit. Here's my key. I'm fucking leaving. And they're like, you can't leave. Right. And I was like, hold on two seconds. So I picked the phone back up. I call the command and I get the XO on the phone and I'm like, here's the situation. These guys are trying to say, I can't leave. He goes, put, he goes, who the fuck is there? And I tell him the guy's name and he's like, put that dude on the phone. And I just hear yelling. And it's just, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Right away, sir. Understand, sir. Right? This, this fucking gunny is like getting his ass chewed. And then he hangs the phone up and I'm like, we good to go or what? And he's like, uh, sorry about that, man. You got to go. So I fucking – I just pack up all my stuff and then they walked in and the, and the, the students you know, who I, I, I came to know pretty well were like, hey, man, what are you, what are you doing? Where are you going? And I was like, guys, I can't I, – I really can't say anything, man. I'm out of here. So um, – it was just like, hey, guys, see you later. So I got in my, my truck and drove back down to Coronado. It was just absolute chaos at the gate because, you know, obviously this is 9-11, the, the day of. And everybody's the, – the threat – the security levels are like through the roof. But I finally get on base, and there's um, – you know, I go up to where our, our platoon cages were at. So like each individual has a cage where those, his uh, like personal shit's at. And it's just there's shit everywhere, right? And I say to one of my, my boys, 
I'm like, yo, man, what's up? He goes, hey, man, the, C- the OIC wants to see you. And I said, all right, cool. So I dropped my little bag and I went upstairs to our platoon space. And, uh, you know, I was like, hey, what's going on? He goes, hey, listen, we're taking everything, pack everything. And I'm like, uh, what are we packing for? And he's like, we're going to war, man, pack at fucking everything. Because I, I was the ordinance rep, so I was in charge of all the, the platoon's weapon systems. And so – you know, you always take care of the team gear first before your own gear. So I went right down to the ordinance. It was like wide open and all the uh, the SEAL support staff were there, right? They're like, hey, and everybody – because you know everybody knows everybody. So they're like, Oz, whatever you need, man. And I was like, this, this – and it was just assholes and elbows, man. And so I spent the whole day um, packing everything, making sure everything was counted, you know, locked and tagged and um, – and all that stuff was just be, you know, set by the front door, and then there's now an armed guard 24-7 on top of that, like watching all of our shit. And then our platoon just kept packing. So we did that for the ordnance. We did it for our diving equipment. We did it for uh, first lieutenant, which is all the maritime, like the boats, the motors. Um, and I mean we did it for everything, our communications equipment. So our air operations equipment. So now we ha- we are starting to build these pallets of just fucking kit after kit. Um, so we did that for about two days. Um, little little sleep. Spent the I want to say the third day something like that packing our personal shit. Um, on the fourth day, fifth day, we go into a briefing room, and um, we're told that that. Uh, that NSW has been authorized, basically the West Coast has been authorized to send one platoon forward and that they were going to take – an Echo platoon was going to go. And so all the guys in Hotel Platoon are sitting there, right? That's our sister platoon. And they're just – you can just see the fucking – their face is drained, right? So we all walk out of there and we start busting each other's balls. We're like, yo, man, sorry you didn't get picked, bro. And they're just like, fuck. And they're just literally like, fuck you guys, man. <laughs> So you're like everybody's like bust each other's balls and kind of had like a little f- fun moment. Um, but that night we were, we were allowed to go home um, to say goodbye to our families. And so I, I so I was in isolation, like no communication with the outside world or my family. You know, when you when you get recalled, you're you're on complete like lockdown. And there's no so so you know there's no calls, there's no nothing. You know, um, so I go home, tell my wife what was going on. And she was like, oh, my God. She's like, you're like leaving? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm leaving, leaving. I'm out of here. And she goes, well, where are you going? I'm like, don't know. Couldn't tell you if I did. And she was like, how long are you going to be gone? I go, I have no idea. And that was it, man. So I was home about maybe like six or seven hours, went back to the base the next day. And then they had the attorneys there uh, from the JAG Corps. And they were – you know, we filled out wills, um, power of attorneys. We did all that shit. And made sure everything was in order that you know for us. And then um, the very you know later on that day or the next day, we we uh, went to North Island, and a C five flew in. I'd never even seen one. That's when the new shit was real, right? <laughs> you hear about it and stuff, and you're like, oh, you're the tip of the spear, and you know, everybody thinks they're badass and all that. But then all of a sudden, this like empty C five lands, and it's completely empty. And they're like, hey man, put you, you know we're here to p- pick you guys up, and we're like, holy fuck. So um, you know, we had like seven pallets of equipment, put it on there. It was just the 18 of us and jumped on that plane and flew um, up to Washington State. And uh, so we picked up maybe like six or seven Army Rangers 
Um, they didn't have any equipment or anything. They were just in their civilian clothes. Um, and then they went with us, but then we ended up uh, in a Camp Doha in Kuwait was where we ended up. Okay, and you guys, uh, like, kind of, like, forward uh, staging? Well, no one really – there was no, like – no one knew what the fuck was going on, right? So we were the first um, SEALs to leave the United States, right? We beat uh, Dev Group and everything else. They were, we know we left before they did, but they have a different mission set than we do. So there's already people deployed overseas, and that's what, you know, obviously most civilians don't understand when they're like, oh, bring the troops home, end the war, and they're chanting all their bullshit – what they don't understand is there's like you know three or four hundred thousand military personnel worldwide always forward deployed, right? And so we're we're now going there just to build up forces. We're not you know there's already there's already forces in place. So we went to Kuwait um, to relieve uh, Delta Platoon from SEAL Team Three who went into Afghanistan before we did. Okay, right. Just kind of keeping that going, right? Mm-hmm. So we get to so we get to we get to uh, Kuwait, and then you know of course we're like, hey man, we're going in. We're gonna be the fir- fucking first ones in. You know everybody's all excited, and you, you got to imagine, dude, this is you know two less than two weeks after nine eleven, right? So pretty, you're pretty fired up to uh, to get some, and we get there and find out that we're not going. We're like, oh fuck. Oh, wow. So we were the, the hurry oh, up and wait. yeah. So we were so bummed out. And then Delta Platoon guys were talking to us. It was the same shit we did to Hotel Platoon. They're like, hey, man. Hey. They're like, yo, guys, um, here's the remote for the cable here. Good luck. We're, go- we're going to war. And we we're just like, fuck. So, you know, so they, they go forward um, and do their thing. And what was interesting, though, is literally, I wonder, this is maybe two weeks later. So, say three weeks after 9 11, call it four weeks. We're out doing our VBSS missions, right? The visit, board, search, and seizure. The ship takedown, the same old thing that that we were, you know, pretty highly trained at, and it already had a lot of experience doing. And we're all pissed off now, right? Which is funny because we were excited as fuck a year ago because we're like, yeah, man, we're the ones that get to do VBSS, and SEAL Team One was never doing anything. Team Five wasn't doing shit, so we were like. <laughs> So the thing that was like super cool to do was now like a burden. We're like, oh, this sucks. Um, but so the very first mission we did though at the 9-11 was taking down a ship uh, Alpha 117. And what was interesting about that ship was that was the boat that al-Qaeda used to smuggle the explosives into Africa using all in the, the two embassy bombings. And so that was – that ship ended up being on – uh, a target, a target list, and we're literally just happened to be in the right place at the right time um, because Dev Group was was there, but they were way way far south, and so that was a, a tier one target. But they couldn't get there in time, and it just had hit international waters, and they were tracking it, and so they gave our platoon the the, the mission to do it because we were really close to it, and so it was just by luck that we ended up getting that mission. Oh right, I, I th- was there like a a documentary done about that or something about that? Yeah, there's been. I mean, obviously, there's. Um, uh, I wrote about it in the book that I was a co-author of in 2008. I've done interviews on on TV about it, but okay. um, but yeah, it was it was a big deal, man. It was like a, a no shit, real world ship takedown, 
of, you know, of, uh, national importance. And, um, you know, but, uh, you know, and I, that's, I would, I tell everybody, man, that's my favorite mission that I did out of, out of all this shit, right? Whether with my first platoon, whether stuff I did in Somalia and the Marine Corps, stuff I did in Afghanistan with his, at team three, but you know, that, that mission in particular, because, you know, you, you get jocked up, you put all your gear on and you get into the, uh, the ribs and, you know, you got all your shit on, man. You got the night vision going, you got everything, you know, and at the, at that moment, you know, you kind of like realize that there's no one else in the world right now doing this. Right. So it was kind of a very unique thing. And, um, very special to me personally was that I just kind of looked around at my boys and I was just like, yeah, man, you know, we trained for years and this, this is it, man. This is our three or four minutes to shine. You know what I mean? And that's what a lot of people don't understand is that you fucking train and train and train and train and train for years to be great for four minutes. Right. And that's what it's really all about. And so at that moment, you know, you realize no one from, uh, any range battalion ain't doing that mission. No green berets can do that mission. You know, we are the maritime special operations and this is, this mission can only be done by us right now at this moment in time. And that was it, man. So that, that's, that's why I like that, that mission the most as far as it's standing out in my mind as being the best one. Yeah. And, and it, you know, at the time people weren't at least, you know, civilians and, and people who are kind of in their own bubble weren't really uh, hip to what was going on because all this activity with Al Qaeda and, and some of these other groups, you know, they were starting to hit at like American interests globally before nine eleven happened. That's right. And, and you know, at, at people are maybe more aware of it now because of you know the books or whatever. But th- you know, this was kind of building up uh, for a couple of years prior to nine eleven. Nine eleven was just kind of the uh, you know the the big event that really changed everything. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was you got to think there was the attack on the coal. There was the first trade trade center bombing there was um you know we we had already launched tomahawk missiles into afghanistan at, um which ended up becoming dubbed tarnak farms 2 t2 yeah um you know years prior to that you know and we just never as a you know as a the united states just never you know chopped the head off that snake and it came back to bite us you know um so it is what it is. Like, you know, can't change history, but, right. um, yeah, but and definitely. And all those, all of those incidents were connected. I mean, the, the first, uh, trade center bombing was done by the nephew of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was really the mastermind of the nine 11 attacks. Yep. Uh, and he, he wasn't a part of Al Qaeda, but he worked with them, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, on the same level as bin Laden. Not exactly, mm-hmm. but you know, like he wasn't under him per se. Uh, but uh, you know, all this stuff was connected. These guys were were doing things in the Philippines. They were doing things in in Africa, uh, Egypt. You know, the, the, this this kind of transnational terrorism was already uh, playing out on the world stage. You know, it just it hit home on nine eleven, and then the U.S. really shifted gears and focused on that. Yeah. I mean, you got to think too that, um, you know, there's, there's people list, that are probably listening to this podcast that, you know, weren't around and weren't even alive. Um, you know, when some of this shit was going on, when I was, yeah. when I was first in the Marine Corps, you got to think, you know, I was in, I was in Somalia after Black Hawk Down and, you know, you got to think about the Clinton White House and that was on their watch. Right. And I think they really lost a taste, you know, for violence, for combat. You know, when you think about what happened there, 
and that being displayed on national television for every for everybody to see and you know it that's when they they literally were like hey man we're not committing the troops anything you know so when the when i was in the last u.s forces there in 1994 95 in mogadishu we pulled out and that was it and you know they haven't committed ground troops to that region since you know there's obviously uh, people over there doing things, but not on some, you know, kind of like grand scale or some type of occupying force or anything like that. So, um, you know, all that stuff is going on. And then that entire time through, uh, president Clinton's campaign, you know, even, you know, just like the Bosnia thing, Sarajevo, all that was a, Hey, we're just going to bomb you and not commit, you know, troops on the ground. And regardless of what anyone was doing to us, whether it's attacking our interests, you know, called the coal, the the World Trade Centers, you know, all that stuff that was going on, we still didn't have a response for it, right? No one was paying for that, and so that to me emboldened the enemy to do what they did on nine eleven. It was Absolutely. like, well, you know, you know, it, and and that's what you know caused. But now, you know, we are doing what we're doing, so. Yeah, there was. A, it's interesting. There was a small, very small group. Um, FBI guy, a guy from the FBI and a uh, a guy from the Port Authority Police who were working together to try and uh, run down like some of the leads on the on the first guy, the Trade Center bombings, and yep, and they were they kind of figured out, you know, about they were kind of uh, mapping out some of these guys who they were, you know, in the Philippines. Uh, guys are running weapons and training and, and doing all these things and they were tracking it but it was really just a very small team of, of, of guys you know working for the government and on top of that they didn't even have like a full green light to do things so it, it really just kind of happened and it, it grew and it festered and then it just all blew up in our faces and yes it did you know so what um so when was it that you went to Afghanistan the first time? So I went to Afghanistan. So we were doing ship takedowns for about a month. And so our platoon ended up in Afghanistan um, the second week of December of 2001. And so we, we went from uh, Oman. We had, we had left uh, Camp Doha in Kuwait and went to Oman. And that's where we uh, were kind of doing like our vehicle preps and getting everything ready to go. And then we jumped on some uh, C-130 uh, Talons and flew in um, low level at, in the middle of the night. They were flying on nods, which I thought was legit. Um, and we landed in uh, in Kandahar Airport. And literally, they, you know, as we landed, the tail ramp went down. We started the vehicles. And we'd done all these like practice runs with them in uh, in Oman. And so, um, you know, everybody has like their job. And so um, we literally land the fucking plane man does a, a u-turn at the end of the runway and we drove our vehicles off and that thing did a combat start and took right off That's and so awesome. yeah yeah it was interesting i mean you gotta think of those the different times you know they don't no one knows what the landscape looks like right they don't know the air threats they don't know um the 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 air to ground missile def- you know no one knew anything it was just like there was there was no real actionable intelligence on the enemy order of battle and what they really had going on and how how many there were how deep they were you know the, the green berets were already there long before we ever got there 
and had linked up with uh, the anti-Taliban forces and were kicking ass. So they were there long before we ever showed up. You know what I mean? They, those guys did a fucking kick-ass job um, doing what Green Berets do best. You know what I mean? And uh, they really fucking <laughs> they, they put the fucking boots to the enemy. I can tell you that. Um, yeah. So you know, we got to um, to Kandahar. The it was funny. We had the 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 air control tower was already spray painted, right? They'd already marked it that they were there. <laughs> oh, did they? Oh, dude, it was fucking hilarious. Yeah, man. So, um, the, before the Marines showed up, um, you know, and it was funny because general Mattis was in charge of the Marine, uh, ground task force at the time. Right. And, uh, so I was cool meeting him when he was still a, a young general, <laughs> so to speak. Um, but he was there, uh, um, and the Marine Corps was there when we landed, but you know, th- there's no doubt. I mean, it's it, it has to be said, and it's hats off, man, to the uh, to to the uh, special forces because they were there before everybody got there. Yeah, yeah, they were there like at the very beginning of it um, mm-hmm. in the north, working. You know, uh, I'm sorry, uh, fighting against uh, Bin Laden and all that, and Taliban, and then also uh, protecting uh, Karzai when, when he yep. when he first got back into the country. Yeah. Yeah. So what? So how long were you guys? Were you in Afghanistan? Were you guys there for like you know six months or so? Or? Uh, we were there until until April or early May of two thousand and two. And at that time, you know, what was the op tempo like? I, I mean, because things were completely different, obviously, from now and or you know even a couple of years ago. So yeah. what was that like for you guys? You guys were kind of just figuring it out uh, as you went. Along. Well, yeah. So once we. Um, got our first mission, the op tempo went through the roof for us because you got to remember, man, we're an unproven um, asset, right? In the sense of even though we specialize in desert warfare, nobody in the SEAL teams had ever stepped foot in Afghanistan. And obviously they everybody thinks Navy SEAL, they think water. They think maritime special operations, and they're like, dude, there's not even a puddle of fucking water around you. Yeah, You know, this isn't your thing. But I always tell them, you know, people all the time, I'm like, look, man, sea, air, and land is an acronym, right? And it's not sea all the time, air some of the time, and land whenever the fuck the Army feels like it. That we can operate everywhere, and we have a, a very unique capability of just adapting around to our environment. You know, we don't need a lot of briefs and a lot of bullshit. And, a, you know, if it's – we just adapt all the time, you know. I mean, that's, that's what special operations is all about. It isn't about, you know, your specific skill set or – you know, your you know, a specific discipline. It's like, hey man, when you get there and everything's completely fucked up and everything looks different than you were told and you have no maps and you don't even know which way is north yet, can you quickly figure that out, get together as a group, um, and change on the fly to be effective against an enemy? And the the answer is yes, be extremely effective. But that's what makes us different than everybody else. And I don't mean just Navy SEALs. I'm talking about our special operations community in general, right? Yeah, right on. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So can you can you share a story uh, from from this deployment, like a combat story? Of, you know, we went on an operation or something like that with the audience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the 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 biggest mission that we're the most well known for, you can even Google it if you want to, um, is the Zarwar Keeley Cave Complex mission. So we were given this mission. Um, and it was supposed to be a battle damage assessment BDA mission of you know B-52s had gone 
in and bombed the area. And so our platoon was basically doing follow-up. And our specific mission was to take pictures of the damage that was done to all the caves um, and to take pictures of all the dead bodies and to do DNA samples on everybody. So we had these DNA sample kits so they could figure out who was being killed, right? You got to think they're doing these massive bombing runs. They've got uh, uh, C-130s at night just raining fire on people. But you know, hundreds and hundreds of people are being killed, but they have no idea who the fuck they're killing, right? Right. And so, because it's just you know, it's just a white hot image on a on a on a on a screen. You know what I mean? On a on an infrared screen that you're watching, so you don't know if that's you know Johnny Taliban or if that's or if that's the man himself, right? So no, so that's why we had all these DNA kits. And so that was our mission was to go in there, and but there was but then there. There was the question of security, like, hey, man, how are we supposed to be, you know, rummaging through these fucking caves and doing all these DNA samples with, you know, 17 to 18 people plus being able to hold security? You know, you talk about the 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 scope of how big the cave complex was. And so it was decided that the Marines were going to join us. So they so 50 Marines were attached to our SEAL platoon and they were our perimeter security. Which has never really doesn't make the books, doesn't make any of the movies, it doesn't make any of the shit that's been done about the documentaries. But you know, it you know, truth be told, we would have never been able to do that mission um, had those Marines not been there. You know, I, I can tell you, man, that it's a, a very it's a very good feeling going in and hitting a target, and knowing that there's 50 fucking Marines. You know what I mean? Getting your back in a in a in your perimeter. You know what I mean? It's pretty pretty legit. Right, and, and it's all part of the, the the system, you know. Everybody has a role that needs to be played in order for things to to uh, work out, uh, yeah, how they are intended to, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we took off from uh, Kandahar Airport in I want to say four CH fifty threes, and we're packed with with people and equipment. Um, but the original mission was a twelve hour mission. It was just a quick on the ground. Hey, man. Go in there, snoop around, see what you got, and come out. And you know, we were we were told, guys, no matter what happens, you're coming out of there in twelve fucking hours. Um, and so we get there, and the bombs basically didn't do shit because they they missed the caves or they didn't. Not, not one of those caves was closed down. Um, and we get in there, and start taking pictures, start sending back all this data, start doing all these cave entries, right? Which was which was scary in itself because. You know, it's like, hey, they could be booby trapped. There could be enemy fighters waiting in there, and the just how the caves were massive. Like you could drive vehicles in them; they're huge. Um, they had underground uh, prison cells. They had lighting in some of them. Um, schools underground. It was it was absolutely insane of how vast the system work was. The the actual tunnel network was was crazy in these mountains. Um, but you know, you think about your brightest weapons light, your brightest surefire light that we had, and we would, you know, we'd make entry into a cave and be searching, and that light would disappear into the dark. Wow. And it wouldn't. It was. It was. Um, it was insane, and we had never seen anything like that, right? So now here you are again, adapting on the fly, right? <laughs> so we're used to doing like ship takedowns, gas no platform takedowns, you know, um, urban environment, you know, type assaults and next thing you know man you're like you're now in a cave and you have no idea and it's you know they have fighting trenches in there they've got um 
you know, you don't know if they're mine. You know, if you're going to step on a booby trap, I mean, it, was, it was pretty nerve wracking, but you know, you're not there to think about the worst. You're just there to perform at your best. So we just started doing our thing and taking, we started taking all these pictures and all this data was being sent back, um, you know, to, uh, uh, Kandahar. And so we work all day. We patrol out. We hit the, you know, as much as we could, we're just like, fuck man, there's just too much. You can't do anything. So all the cave entrances were marked. All the like, there was uh, tanks there. There was um, uh, anti-air aircraft guns. There was tons of stuff there in this cave complex. Wait, so they were marked by the enemy? No, they were marked by us. Okay, I see. Okay. We we had, we had gone through and marked everything with these GPSs, okay. right? And we were just basically going to take all that data back so they could you know do follow up uh, um, airstrikes. So as we're waiting for our extract to come. Our OIC is on the radio with our um, task force commander, right? We were in task force K-Bar. So he's on the phone, and you, and, you know, it's like, oh, no, no. So, you know, he hangs up. Then our head shit has a little powwow. Then we're like, hey, boys, gather around. And then at that moment, we're told that we're staying. And it was like, well, what's up, sir? I thought, you know, we were 12 hours in and out no matter what. And – the headshed was pissed off because we had passed a bunch of uh, grave sites and we didn't dig up the bodies and do DNA samples. So it was so our logic was well they're already buried. Just you know what I mean. There's nobody we're fucking looking for, right? But again, you know it's brand new. No one knows what's really going on. They're trying to figure shit out. So they were like, nope, you guys are staying. So we ended up staying out there for nine and a half days. Oh wow. And, you know, we, we had only taken enough equipment for that 12 hour mission plus 12. So we had about 24 hours worth of rations and water, um, in case you got extended out there. Um, but that's when we, you know, again, so we started, um, you know, capturing, killing chickens, a goat, um, small cow. That's what we used to feed, um, the seal platoon, most of the Marines, cause there was no MREs and shit was, was done. Um, and we really started to, um, go to work, you know, so we were nonstop patrolling. We had like this little, um, um, village that we took over on top of a hilltop and that's where we all stayed. And then we would do patrols out of that. And then that, all those GPS coordinates and all that, all that stuff that ended up becoming our target list. And so day and night for nine days, we called in over 200 airstrikes. Oh, wow. And it was it was the most ordnance dropped on an area target since the Vietnam War, and so we we were we were doing a lot of work. Um, you know, we would there was one time we were patrolling and ran into some enemy combatants um, coming out of some caves, but they were really far away, about 500 meters, and we called in airstrikes and, and killed them. Um, we destroyed um, a uh, uh, an actual Al Qaeda training facility a training camp so we took pictures of all that and it was like where they were teaching people how to make booby traps and bombs and all this other shit so we did, we leveled that with an airstrike so we did a lot of work in that nine and a half days um but it was it was interesting but then after that mission it went it was basically like hey man um you know these guys can do anything if we just send them in to do it and so from that point forward it seemed like every other day we were getting hit with another mission to go execute and and that was the point that you said earlier where the, the op tempo just kind of shot through the roof? 
that's where the oppo tempo went like through the roof to where it was like sometimes it was like jesus man <laughs> um and then because we were part of task force k-bar um you know the german ksk commandos were there the danish the norwegians the canadians uh australian sas new zealand sas there was a ton of uh special operations it was like the who's who right of um it was the all-star game of fucking spec ops so we were allowed to work with all these people, um, and we mostly worked with the German KSK because these target sets, you know, these these uh, areas that we were searching in these these um, villages and these and these targets were huge. Some of them were massive, and so we just didn't have enough people, and so that's why we started teaming up with um, the German KSK commandos. Um, and so, like, you, if you Google that and you see any pictures of like guys wearing three color desert camo, or Solid desert camo, and then there's the German KSK. That was my platoon doing all those missions with those guys. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was gonna say, I'm you know, Task Force K Bar. That was a big um, kind of coalition of, of different groups, and I, I guess that's kind of an exciting thing. You know, all these different uh, special operations units from around the world coming together and right uh, and, and going after it. Yeah, and it was you know was I thought was super cool was that. You know, we had never seen any of these guys, right? But, you know, you read all the books, right? You read about their selection processes. You read about missions they've done and, and stuff they, you know, and then now you're there with them, you know, and you kind of like, you know, realize, hey, man, they're dudes just like us wearing a brown T-shirt and growing a beard and, you know, trying not to get killed. And, you know, um, you really, you know, that's where like the bonding and like the, you know, um, you get to really, you know, kind of, you know, lift the, uh, the veil of secrecy off some of these units and some of these guys and just get to hang out with them and bond with them and become friends with them. I mean, some of those guys I'm still friends with to this day, which is crazy, but oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how long after this rotation, how long was it, uh, of your entire time spent in the Navy? Like how long just till you got out? Seven years total. So between the Marine Corps and the SEAL teams, I, I had 11 years of, uh, service. And then I, you know, three combat deployments. First, in the Marine Corps was Somalia. My first platoon at Team Three, doing all the VBSS missions, and then Afghanistan. So each time I deployed, I was doing real world uh, missions, which was fucking great for me, anyway. All right, cool. So can we let's let's transition a little bit and talk about you getting out of the military, and then you know what some of that process was like for you because did, did you immediately uh, create a business or did that take some time? No, the business was already going. So I had started tactical assault gear, um, in April of 2001. So this is a few months before nine 11. Right. And it's, uh, you know, I look back on the time I call it operation enduring training where you're like just training your ass off. It's all you're doing. Right. And, you know, sitting around the campfire talking about, Oh, what if we ever go to war? What if it ever happens? Right. Um, and I, I guess it's a, you know, careful what you wish for type scenario. But so, you know, I went from the Marine Corps where you were just, you were issued certain stuff. And if you want anything nice, like a Gore-Tex jacket, you had to go buy it out of your own pocket. Um, you know, this it's obviously different now, but, um, but then I came into the SEAL teams and then it was just, Hey man, you, you're a SEAL. You can do what you want with all your equipment. You can modify it. You can throw it in the fucking garbage. You, you know what I mean? Most of us, you know, it was complete culture shock, right? But there really wasn't any – there wasn't any place in San Diego to buy equipment, right? And 
you know, so the closest shops that I was familiar with were up in Oceanside, but you know, it's 45 miles away, you know, and, and, you know, no one's going to drive all the way up there to get, get shit. So, um, a friend of mine was friends with the founder of Blackhawk, Mike Knoll. So across from my cage there in the SEAL team, you know, I kept talking about gear and all this shit. And my boy's like, hey, man, why don't you call my buddy? He has a gear company. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, man, you ever heard of Blackhawk? And I'm like, no, man, I've never heard of it. You, you know, this is like 1998, 1999 timeframe, 2000, you know. And so um, I give this dude a call and I'm on the phone with him and I'm like, hey, man, I'm in the SEAL teams. I want to, you know, I want to, you know, I want to learn more about your stuff and and he told me there was a store in Virginia Beach off a of shore drive called Extreme Outfitters. It's no longer there, but he's like, yeah, man, you got to check out their store. And I'm like, a store? He goes, yeah, you, yeah, all of our stuff's like on display there. And I'm like, okay. So literally took leave and I flew out there and went to Extreme Outfitters. And I was like, holy shit, man. I was blown away, right? It's like a 5,000 square foot store. And it was just nothing but tactical shit everywhere. And it was sleeping bags, gloves, boots, knives. I mean, they fucking had everything. And I was like, it was like my aha moment of life. And I was like, I was like, if there was something like this in San Diego, you know, how could it not be? And the place was packed with people buying shit. Um, But they had like Nalgene bottles. They were selling American flag hats, stickers. I mean, they, it was like, you know, posters. I mean, they just had so much stuff. And I was blown away by it. I was just like, you know, a gear geek from the start. And I was like, that's it. So I signed up to become a Blackhawk dealer in 2001. And that's where I started, you know, selling tactical equipment. That's how, that's how I got involved in all that. So I know for some guys getting out, the transition is a little bit of a struggle for them. And then some people get out and they, they find that the transition is a little smoother. Uh, would you say the transition was smoother for you? Um, I would say it was smoother because I had something to do, right? Right. You 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 kind of knew what you were going to get into. Yeah. Like I fell in love with being an entrepreneur, right? And I loved being at the store. I loved learning about the equipment, learning about manufacturing. I loved interacting with the customers and really, you know, being a, a, in that world. And so that was something I fell in love with and I, I still like it. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I still love it if you will. Um, and you know, it, when, so I got out in 2004, 2005 timeframe and I already had a retail store, right? I had my own retail store in Imperial beach down the, down, down the strand from the seal teams. Um, I had one up in Oceanside. Um, and then, Years later, I opened another one outside of Fort Bragg in Fayetteville, North Carolina. But that was my thing, right? That was so all my effort and energy poured into that. And what I see today with guys, you know, they'll do 10 years, 15 years, whatever, and they'll get out and they're like, oh, yeah, man, I was a Navy SEAL. I can fucking do anything. And then they realize that the civilian population could give two fucks about you being a Navy SEAL. And that means really nothing. Like if you're in a boardroom and you know, sitting there in your suit and tie and reading a spreadsheet, you know, the fact that you are in Afghanistan after 9-11 means nothing, right? It doesn't, it doesn't equate to success in the business world. All it does is open the door for you, right? right. So on the resume, it may say Navy SEAL or Green Beret or Ranger or whatever. And it, you know, but that just lets you get your foot in the door. You know, it's up for, it's up to you to get in the room and be successful. And, and 
a lot of guys have a problem with that because you're, you know, you're coming from a world that, you know, only you really understand and the people who've been around you understand. And what you hold near and dear to your heart for being successful, like when you hold somebody in high regard as being a, you know, a pipe hitting fucking operator, that same person may be the biggest shitbag you've ever heard of in the civilian world. Right, because those people surrounding you don't give a fuck about physical fitness. They don't care that you can shoot a pistol better than everybody. They could give two shits that you're a badass with, uh, you know, demolition and you're a breacher. They don't care less that you got 12, 1200 skydives, right? That you're Halo Jumpmaster. That doesn't transition into the real world, as I call it. And so a lot of guys have a hard time going from being really well respected, really well known, to then being in a world where you can't even have conversations with a lot of people because they won't understand one what it is or or two most of it's classified right and now you're now you have to listen to a fat a fat bastard <laughs> right <laughs> who's never who doesn't work out who's got an ugly ass wife but he's very successful and he makes a lot and he makes more money than you and he's now your boss and it, it grinds on people man right. because there's you know the 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 levels of excellence and expectation are completely different, you know, compared to the military. And so that's why a lot of guys have I think they have a lot of hard they have a hard time doing it. You know, right. you go from Yeah. Yeah, guys kinda get hit in, in that in that kind of area that you just described and it really um, kinda has some really bad effects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, um, you know, it's it's also on the on the on the person getting out of the military. You know what I mean? And you think, you know, it's not like you don't know you're getting out years before you get out. You know, you don't wake up one day and go, "Hey, Chris, did you know today's your last day here?" And you're like, "What?" You're like, "Yeah, man, SEAL Team Three, we're letting you go, man. You're fired." You're right? It's not like that. You know, for years when the fuck you're getting out. And so all these guys in the military and girls too that know they're getting out and they don't have a plan. They don't. They don't do shit. They think that they're just going to get out, and they're just like, oh, fuck the military. I can't wait to get out. I want to live by my own rules and fuck the system, blah, 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 blah. Six months later, they're, they're, you know, they have problems, man. Right. And, and you know, a lot of people want to blame the military and fuck the VA and this, that, and everything, but it's not that. I think it's, it's fuck the person who was in the military who didn't have a plan and, you know, thinks that somehow the world owes us something, right? Like I – I hate it when people are like, oh, thank you for your service because I'm like, dude, I, I loved doing what I was doing. And the, and you, the American tax, taxpayer, paid the money to give me the weapons and shoot those bullets to do what I did. I don't think anybody owes me shit. You know? And that's that's my attitude, and I think that's you know, probably some reason why I've had some success because I'm not looking for thank yous and I'm not looking for – accolades from anybody and i don't think anybody owes me or any veteran anything it's like hey dude just you know and i tell people look man if you could film the guys that are bitching about the military and you should be thanking me for my service and i'm a fucking veteran and right go back 15 years when they were begging to get into the military literally in tears i'll do any job please let me in please let me in right so they're, they're their own worst enemy right and it's it's interesting, kind of interesting dynamic, because you on one hand you have a, a community of people who are out of the military and whatever their job was, whatever branch they were in, you know, people come from all different walks of of kind of military service, and 
And then it's just like mostly you see this kind of online, you know, Facebook, whatever. You know, everybody's on Facebook. And you'll see guys like, you know, kind of jumping into the politics a little bit and or, or whatever's going on, whatever this, the discussion of the day is. And then a lot of times you, you hear guys or, or see them writing about it, you know, snowflakes or, you know, this, this generation, the millennials are entitled and, and all these things. But in reality, a lot of, and not everyone does this, I'm not saying that, but in reality, a lot of guys are doing some of the things that they're accusing other people of doing. And, and I'm not even sure that they realize it uh, at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think that, you know, it's... I don't know. I call myself a, a liberal Republican in the sense of like I don't want anybody to fuck with me. I don't care what anybody does. I don't care about sex, creed, color, religion, sexual orientation. To me, I just think you know all humans are humans, and people should just be left to do what they want. Um, but I also believe that you know me wanting to own guns shouldn't bother anybody else, right? You know what I mean? Because I'm not in your house trying to tell you how to live your life. Why are you in my house trying to tell me how to live mine? Right. So that's where I. That's where my push and pull comes from if you just, if you strip out all the you know the politics of, of things um you know it basically just breaks down to you don't like me and agree with my lifestyle i don't like you and agree with your lifestyle and then people are just you know so pol- polar op- opposite now and um that in a course with the advent of social media you know people can get into online arguments never be held accountable and right. you know so people just people just go crazy over the dumbest shit i don't i don't get it um, <laughs> I try to, not to get myself that wound up over things that are out of my control. You know, I kind of I, I try to stay in my little, you know, three foot circle and do my thing. Well, I, I actually kind of agree with the, with everything you said. I mean, you're, you're right. People go crazy, and then with this whole online thing, you're right. There is no kind of accountability. You know, people will say things or whatever, and these are people you're never going to see or. Or they'll say things because they think they're never going to see you. You know that all that kind of petty stuff. But I think mm-hmm. people do get caught up in, in having an opinion on every little thing, and then feeling like that their opinion is the gospel, and, and it has to be this way or, or the highway. When right, you know, I think it should. Just my personal opinion, it should be more along the lines of, you know, I do my thing, you do your thing, and everybody's happy that way. You know. Yeah, and I and I do see it all the time, and I and I'm gonna you know participated in my in it myself i think everybody has is that you right. latch on to your idea of what you think is right and you will argue to the death yeah. against against somebody trying to trying to get them to understand your point of view and trying to say hey, man you know what maybe you're right and, and it's never going to happen you know what i mean yeah. it's better just to that's why i'd like to hear people's opinions and i can you know take away from that what i want but i i just think that you know, when it, it gets so fired up and so crazy, people start threatening each other. And, you know, you, you've seen it all, man. You know what I mean? Yeah. With all the social media stuff. And like you, you know, like we say, you know, you, you, if you could be held accountable, if there was an actual name and a real face to that and your, you know, your coworkers and your parents and shit could read what you're writing in secret in your mom's basement, people okay. would be writing, people wouldn't be writing half the shit that they're writing. Right. Right, it kind of has a different dynamic to it, and and it's interesting because it's a dynamic that humans never dealt with. You know, this is the only time where people were able to talk to each other from across the country, across the planet. You know, at like instantaneous speeds and and um, interact. Yeah, you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's all instantaneous, instant gratification. Right. You know. 
Right. Okay. So, how long were you uh, running this company, uh, Tag Tactical Assault? So I was running Tag until 2009, 2010. Um, officially sold it in in, two, in January of 2010 um, to a larger, you know, government contractor out on the East Coast in North Carolina. Um, and then I was with them for about a year. And, and hated it. You know what I mean? Is, um, you know, I would sell the company again. I think it was the right time to sell the company, you know, made, uh, a lot of money selling the company, which was cool. Uh, more money than I'd ever dreamed of. Um, and even knew what to really do with it at the time. Um, so the financial security of it, you know, I, like I say, I would sell it tomorrow again, but I didn't look far enough into, you know, who I was selling it to and how that was going to affect me on a personal level and the things I talked about before, you know, really resonate true with me is that, you know, here I am running my own company, wearing a t-shirt, riding my motorcycle to work. You know, I had a kegerator next to my desk. So when people would come in be like, yo man, you want a beer, dude, we'd sit down and we'd, you know, drink beer and talk shop and design gear. Right. And then all, all of a sudden, you know, HR is like, hey, well, we have a no jean policy. You can't wear jeans at work. You can't wear a t-shirt at work. You, you're an executive now. You have to have a shirt and a tie, and wear slacks and, and uncomfortable shoes. And it it, it fucking sucked. Right. Um, right. You, you it absolutely get, fucking sucked. Yeah, you get squeezed into that kind of conventional nine to five type of deal. Yeah, and you know, it was at that moment in time where I kind of looked around. I'm like, damn, man, these guys are really successful. These girls are successful, but they're all ugly. They're all fucking fat. Um, <laughs> you know, they don't do. They they're literally living to come to work, and right. that's. I was just like, man, that's no fucking life at all, man. This right. is and it, it and it was an education in what I didn't want to be. Right. You know what I mean. And about a year into that, I tapped out. I was like, fuck this. So I resigned um, as the vice president, as, as a vice president there in that company. And then I did consulting work for uh, a few years. And then I got on the phone with the president of the company I sold it to, a guy named Bill. And Bill and I were talking, and he's, um, you know, because I was doing consulting work. Um, and the brand was having a lot of issues, right? It wasn't doing so well in the market space. And I was like, well, look, man, I can, you know, maybe you guys can hire me on as a consultant, you know, cause I'm the life, you know, the, the idea behind the brand. I was basically the brand, right? And they didn't have any designers. No one there had ever been in special operations. So it was just kind of a shit show for them. And he was like, well, I don't want you, I don't need a, a consultant, you know, would you come back full time? And I said, yeah, I'd, I'd drop everything I could right now and come back full time because I missed the brand. Um, you know, I didn't miss the office environment at all and miss any of that, but I definitely missed the brand that I'd created. So I went back um, thinking that I'd be able to to change it for the better. And it ended up just be get, get, getting worse and worse and worse. Um, so I was there for, God, man, almost five years um, living in San Diego and I was commuting back and forth from San Diego to North Carolina. Uh, but things just, things came to a head. And as I want to say about a year and some change ago, I started designing my own product for the motorcycle industry, you know, cause I've been riding motorcycles since like 2002. That was my, that was my therapy, right. From, from operating and the top tempos and the business that I had. And that, that was the thing that I just loved doing was riding my bike. And in that, in that world, everything's made in Mexico, made in China. And it's really, it's just nylon 
you know, stuff for your, your gas tanks, you know, magnetic bags or for, you know, your handlebars or whatever. So I just looked at it as, you know, Hey, I'll just use my, the same factories, the same materials, the same, everything I use for military equipment and just make it for, um, you know, the motorcycle industry. And that's where I started Chris Osmond designs. And that's what, that's what I do full time now. You know, every, everything came to a head in the tactical industry, and I, they fired me from my own from the company that I created, which was kind of you know poetic justice. But, um, you know, but that, but they did me a, a favor in the long run, you know, because I was I was absolutely miserable there, and I, <laughs> I I cannot even emphasize to any of the listeners how horrible going from special operations and you know being the best of the best and owning your own company and then literally not needing to have a job not needing to work you know what i mean but and then being surrounded by by people that 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 you would never associate with and that you just in your mind you just think are total dipshits and losers and it was is is a, a mentally painful experience but i i lasted almost 5 years there um so almost 6 years in total um before it all came to a head, but now, you know, like I said, I've been doing my own, my own thing again, getting back to my roots of being an entrepreneur and a designer and, and really enjoying life and taking advantage of, uh, you know, the things I've been blessed to have. Yeah. You know, I think in regards to the whole nine to five deal, I mean, that, that type of schedule and, 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 you know, way of working style of working, that stuff was made up in the, um, during the industrial revolution so we're like running on like a system that was created you know 200 right. years ago or something you know what i mean so it's just like it's really outdated and and then a, a lot of people share this same sentiment of really not enjoying life on the nine to five shift you know e- right even if, even if you're making a lot of money you know yeah well it's just, i i call it a social experiment right it's it's a you know, it's a it's a social experiment in a in a sense of like, hey, you're going to be in a building with people you've never met. You're going to be forced to get along, all to do a job that you, nobody really wants to do, but you're just doing it for money, right? So it's different than like the military. It's just the same thing. You're in a group of people you've never met before from all walks of life, but the difference is you ha- all have the military and its core values and mission accomplishment, right, as the goal. And through that, you guys all bond and become lifelong friends. And then you experience life or death with people that really solidifies your relationship, right? In the in the civilian sector, in a regular job, you don't have that, right? The mission is just, hey man, to be in a fucking meeting. There is no, you know, there is no bigger mission, right? It's not like you're taking a village or you're assaulting an enemy target or you're going in to rescue somebody or to save, you know, uh, children from, uh, certain death or, you know, I mean, there's nothing like that. So it's just this perpetual cycle of, you know, nine to five or seven to six. And it's just absolutely boring with no end in sight. Right. The, the only goal is for people to, they do it be like, yeah, I mean, I want medical insurance and hopefully one day I can retire when I'm 65. Yeah, that's just like not, not Fuck. cool, man. Yeah, it just hurt. yeah. You saying that just hurt. Like it just hit my it hit my soul. Man. <laughs> yeah, and you know you're and and there's no way to, um, you know you can't really express how you feel to somebody because you get in trouble with HR, right? You can't if if somebody is 
doing something wrong, you can't just be like, yo, man, you're really fucked up, dude. You got to pull your head out of your ass. Right. But that's the way that I'm used to communicating with people is just being brutally honest. And I expect the same thing. But there are people out there who get offended by curse words and they run to HR. Oh, and yeah. next thing, it's, it's terrible. Man. It's yeah. And then, and then, you know what I mean? So then, so then because people are so afraid to get in trouble for saying anything, no one says anything. And now you're just in this quiet office environment. Everybody walks around, not trying to hurt anybody's feelings, just so they can go to lunch on, you know, Hey, punch in 30 minutes for lunch, 45 minutes for lunch. And you're like, if you think about it, man, you're racing, you know, to fucking Jimmy John sandwich, choking down some disgusting processed meal. <laughs> Soon get back to your desk, you know, fart your way to the final bell because you got indigestion problems from that from that disgusting lunch. <laughs> and then your boss is like, yo, hey, dude, um, you know, where are you going? I'm like, I'm out of here, man. It's, it's four o'clock. Hey, well, we're going to have another meeting. You want to stay till five? Uh, and what do you say? No. So you say yes. And then it's, hey, you know, so-and-so's out of town. Let's go to a business dinner. Right. It's just this. It's just a. a and that's all you do, man. These and those people that that live to just be in an office to work, those those people are the walking dead, man. That is the yeah. absolute definition of what I never want to be. I, I would rather live in the woods and make my own fire and live off the land. <laughs> you know what I mean? Seriously. Then then to ever do that because there's you're just I mean, think about it. you go to college, you have all this fucking debt from student loans, and your reward for doing what your parents told you to do is to stare at a cubicle and a fucking yeah. flat screen for just, the next 30 years. Just suck ass and hate every second of it, man. Yeah, yeah. That's your reward, you know? Yeah, I, entrepreneur, you know, being an entrepreneur really is the way to go. And I'm, and if you if you kind of think about it, it's, it's really kind of a, a part of, like, the American identity, you know? Mm-hmm. No, very much so, and I and I I try to tell people if 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 I could ever get across to people is the word security. You know, my my parents were like, "Yeah, I'm doing this job because it's job security, right?" And there is no such thing as job security, right? I thought I was in a secure job until somebody was like, "Hey, man, you're not wanted here anymore. Go fuck yourself." So, is there real security in that? Think about, man. You got your resume filled out. You work someplace for a few years. You either resign or they fire you. That's, there's only two options, right? And you go to the next job, resign or fire. Next job, resign or fire. There's there's no real security in any of that. I think if you're an entrepreneur and you find something you love and you can make it work, that's the real security because you're never going to fire yourself. And you can make your own decisions. And when you are an empowered individual who – takes their life and their own destiny into their own hands that to me is the real security the people who make you know four or five hundred thousand dollars a year as an executive that's not secure that's just money you know what i mean and every single one of those people are kissing somebody else's ass so they don't fucking have to resign or get fired too they're just making more money doing it right exactly and and you know it's it's financial freedom you know, you, you want to be able to achieve that. You know, look, not everybody's going to be a successful entrepreneur. Right. It's definitely possible. You know, you have to kind of find your niche and, and put in the work and, you know, make it happen. But I think, like, true freedom is is being an entrepreneur, being your own boss, calling the shots, you know, working for as much work as you want to work 
or right. you know whatever it is and and to me that is true freedom you know not like uh, yeah. yeah you you can do what you want you can go you know take your two weeks vacation every year or whatever it is but at the end of the day you're still punching in you're still punching out and and you're you know you're sucking your teeth you know for as long as you're doing that so yeah well and and you're thinking about man you're doing it for somebody else too right if you're working for yourself then everything all the effort you do manifests itself into self-reward you know what i mean if you get smart on taxes you know Everything you spend your money on in everyday life, you're using post-tax dollars if you get a paycheck. But if you're an entrepreneur, you spend all that money at the end of the year. They say, hey, man, how much money does the business make? And you're like, um, 100 bucks because everything that a, a corporation is taxed on what it, what it earns, not on what it makes. If that, you know what I mean? So you could bring in a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, but if you spend a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, you're not getting taxed on it because you spent it growing your business. On advertising, on meals, on the company vehicle, on the company, you know, car insurance. So, you know, you don't really need to make as much money as an entrepreneur as you would need to make in a in a traditional, you know, standard paycheck job, you know. And you know, and on top of that, you have the freedoms to. I don't need to ask anybody to go on vacation. I can just leave if I want, right? You know. And to me, that's real freedom. And I think about it, you know. All the time, you know, you know, all the friends of mine that have been killed and maimed and burned and all the crazy shit that's happened in the last 15 years. And I'm like, you know, was that sacrifice, you know, if I could go to their graves in Arlington right now, would they come out of that ground and say, hey, man, we did this so you could get a job and be in a fucking cubicle? Right. Right. They would be they would, you know, they'd be disappointed that I was in a cubicle, you know. Absolutely. Um, and so I think it's better to live like as an entrepreneur and to find something that you really enjoy. You know, everybody has something they are truly passionate about. You just got to find that passion and and follow your dreams and and don't let anybody say you can't do it. You know, and at the end of the day, you know how much stuff do you really need to be happy, right? Because if you're happy, then you don't need a bunch of shit to make you happy. I think people who are miserable go out and buy three and four cars. People who are miserable have four screen, four flat screen TVs in their house. People, who are, you know, what I mean, are, they're they're trying to fulfill their their misery void with shit. And I don't want to live my life like that. I don't want to earn a bunch of money just to buy stuff to have it. That's going to eventually end up in a landfill, right? Exactly. And and happiness is a choice. You know, you you can it is you can be happy. You know, making sixty thousand a year as an entrepreneur, or you know, whatever it is you're doing, but yeah. you know, ultimately, you know, I, I know people who make very good money. You know, highly trained professionals in, in their industry, and they're miserable. And it's like, what's the point of you know going through all these years of schooling and training and blah 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 to only get to where you wanted to be and still not be happy? You know, right. And they're making all that money and believing that they still need to keep making more and more and more when they could literally stop going to work. If, they, and they, if they've saved enough money and they have something, they could literally stop tomorrow and change their lifestyle and work for themselves. But they won't do it because everybody thinks that like – you know, there's like – like I said, I go, always go back to that security thing. They think that's, that's the security of it. But I think that it's the most insecure thing you can do is putting your future in someone else's hands. And that's what you do at a job. You're, and I'm not talking about the kid in college who's doing the regular, you know, 
working at the pizza parlor type job or the car washer doing whatever the fuck you got to do to survive. I'm talking about once you graduate, you know, high school, college, and now you're in your career field, right? You're, you're literally leaving your future and destiny in someone else's hands. They're literally looking at some piece of paper and saying, Hey man, well, you know, we've graded out your position. And in this state, uh, for that amount of training for that, this is what your salary is. Right, and this, you this is what you're worth. This is what you're worth, and and you take that because you have to eat, right? And that become and that's it, man. The moment you say yes, you're in the rat race. You're fucking there, man. Yeah, and and it's 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 difficult to get out. But for one thing I would tell people, uh, because I have these type of conversations with people, you know, friends or whatever, and people kind of it, it it is tricky to kind of find something that you like i mean some people can do it like you knew you wanted to join the navy it wasn't a question for you not everyone yep. is like that right but right so then the question will become how do you figure out or, or you know what do you do to, to kind of figure things out and my advice would be to read books because uh, reading books you can read about other people's experiences you can read about other times in history where things were done you know this way or whatever and that really, to me, is what is, is kind of opens up the world to you, because all over the world and all over history, people wrote books, you know, from all walks Absolutely. of life. Absolutely. And, and yeah. I feel like that's kind of a. If, if you're not sure, I feel like that's a could be a guide to figuring out what it is that you're truly passionate about. Yeah, I, I love reading, and you know, I come from a time in the military where there was no iPod, there was no fucking i. You know, iPhones. There was no iPad, so if you wanted to be entertained, man, it was it was a uh, a tape deck or <laughs> you were reading books. Yeah. So I've always I've always loved reading books, and you know I always have a stack of books ready to be read. Um, you know, and I and I I have probably, man, I would tell you, in the last twenty years, you know, read well over five or six hundred books, and it covers a broad spectrum of um, of history of business and especially when I became an entrepreneur and really got into it and really I was I was a sponge reading um probably a book a week for like five or six years and I'd always be in the library uh always at the bookstore always trying to find some new book that I could read and I always liked reading books about uh entrepreneurial companies and how you know how companies were really started you know what I mean um and that was that was a lot of fuel for my fire um one of the one of the be- better books I've read just recently is called Shoe Dog, um, and it was written by um, you know Phil Knight, who's the founder of Nike. Mm. And it's not and it's not about Nike's success and how they became you know an eight nineteen billion dollar a year company. It is the first twenty twenty five years of him struggling, of him going bankrupt, of him being in meetings and not knowing shit about finances, about. Um, you know his struggles with marketing, with advertising, how they came up with the Nike swoosh, how he got sued, how he was in lawsuits. I mean, all this stuff entrepreneurs deal with. But you know, people only look at the success, right? And I, you know, you take a company like Nike, you could take a company like Starbucks. Any of those companies started off with one person, with one idea, with an unrelenting commitment to themselves yep. and to the and to the brand that they created, and they were not going to fucking stop no matter what happened. No matter how many times they've been sued, and that's what makes somebody successful. That's what makes a brand a brand, right? Yeah. You know, and anyone can be a manager at a Nike, but could you be the fucking guy that created Nike? That's the difference. 
right. between an, an entrepreneur and a professional manager. Right. Absolutely. And, and a lot of people, you know, just from my, my experiences, you know, day to day grind, I see that a lot, uh, you know, with because I, I come from like an entrepreneurial background. You know, I, I ran a company before, uh, you know, we, we had some success and, and whatnot. So I, I understand it. And I, I I see both sides of the coin running your own company and then, you know, punching in, punching out. And you can just see it like people, you know, have such a, like a small bubble that they live in where they don't see the difference between, you know, really grinding and what that means versus just like managing, you know, managing the floor, you know, do this, do that or whatever inventory, whatever it is. And yep. I think people just need to kind of broaden their, their their horizons a little bit. Like I said, you know, read and 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 through reading, you can you know, as you're reading this book, you can pick up on something else, and then you get two more books about something different that was just mentioned in this book. You know, things like that. Yeah. And it really just opens it up for you. And and it's interesting that that book that you just referenced. I'm not familiar with it, but what I would say is that. It's really important to understand the journey versus just the success, you know? That's right. Yeah. You know, one one common theme that is with all of these companies that I have found that just ring you know, rings true with me is that, you know, I've been sued. I've sued other companies. I have filed for patents. I've been sued you know, all you know, every company is the same, that there are a lot of people who get up every day and hope that you're unsuccessful, right? They're called your competitors, yeah. right? Your my competitors hate my fucking guts, right? To this day, you know, um, even in the motorcycle industry, right? I was I was not making I was not making handlebar bags for four months before a competitor started talking shit about me and bashing me and this and that. And I look back and I'm just like, dude, you know, they do it because they know you're a threat, and people just have to wade through all of that. People have this way through the white noise of social media and the haters and all this, and I, I and I, you know, say it all the time. You will bust your ass for ten years to be an overnight success, right? Yeah. It's it's the it's the destination that's not the. I mean, it's it's the journey, not the destination, right? You know, like you say to do, to your point, you know, um, everybody knows those companies because of the success they've had. But very rarely do people really go into the history and learn about all the struggles and of all the sacrifice that got them there. That's what makes them so successful, not just dollar revenue-wise, but that they they made it through all the bullshit and came out on the other side. Yeah, and, and, and it's it's so important to understand that if you want to be successful. I mean, you, you literally have to be a, like a maniac, and, and that's the only way that you can – it gets done. Like you have to uh, – Eat, breathe, sleep, and shit your craft, and 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 think about it all the time, and and in that way, you become this professional, or you know, you become tag, you know, gear, uh, and, yeah. and and it's really if you look at it, uh, you know, as a former seal, you guys spent like all this time and training, like maniac amount of hours, to perfecting your craft. And like you said, you know, we trained for years for this, you know, three or four minutes of of actually, you know, running this operation where we were doing all this training for. And 
and that's really what, what, what makes the difference between success and, and not success. Getting up every single day at the same time, you know, go to your job, get out, come home, you know, go to the supermarket, whatever, cook, hit the gym, whatever it is. That's a routine, and it's 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 better to do that than to be you know homeless on the street. But ultimately, you you have to kind of get past that and work you know harder than that if if you want to be at the top of your game, whatever it is. Yeah, well, and a lot of people too aren't ever going to become entrepreneurs because not because they can't be successful in a sense of running a business or managing people, but most the biggest thing I found with most people who don't do it is because they like to be told what to do, mm. right? They're, they don't have that natural outgoing, you know, personality. A lot of people are more introverted and they want to, they want to be like, when, when's lunch? Okay. It's from 12 until 1245. They, they want that, that routine because they feel comfortable in with routine, which I think is, but in my mind, I think it's pure chaos, like anything that's routine is chaotic to my mind. Right. Like in, internally, I emotionally get driven insane by being there at seven o'clock every day, drinking the same fucking coffee, <laughs> you know, talking to the same people, going to the same, uh, you know, boardroom meeting, you know, um, talk about the same old shit. And it's like, you know, here's the task for the day. And they're like, hey, we're going to try the entrepreneurial operating system so we can better communicate as a group you know we're gonna do this and that and then nothing ever gets done you know it is it is paralysis through analysis you know they're just so busy meeting and trying to figure out how to better communicate they're just like dude just tell the motherfucker what to do and he'll do it if not if not shit can him but they can't because corporate america doesn't work like that now right you know and so, oh, well, they got to be written up. They have to be warmed. They have to this. They have to that. And, and, it, and, and literally, it can take years to weed out those that don't belong where if I'm like doing my own thing and I don't like that I'm dealing with somebody, I just – I'm like – I'm just block them on my phone and never talk to them again. It's like easy. you yeah, know. It's so, it's so simple <laughs> and, and it's beautiful too to, to be able yeah. to do that. And and you know, like like you were saying before, you know, you go to Arlington – and you know your some of your friends who who were killed, you know they they come out of the ground and they look at what you're doing and it really that to me like I said before that's what it's about. I mean just having that freedom and and making those decisions and 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 executing. You know like yeah pe- people do their forty hour weeks. I I do minimum fifty plus every single week and and and, and you know that's I, I work a nine to five and I I run this company here and uh, you know I'm, yep. I'm trying to get it going to a, a point where I don't have to work the nine to five anymore, but you know, that's just a, the kind of effort that it takes and it, it's just nonstop and people don't understand it, but you know, hopefully, you know, audience, people listening to this podcast, uh, you know, they can take away some really good points uh, yeah. from, from this discussion. Yeah. I mean, and you're doing it, man. You, you are practicing what you're preaching, right? You're not just sitting back in the shadows, you know, talking and, about yeah i know a guy that did this i know a girl that did that you're you're putting it into practice and that's why you're going to be successful because you're actually fucking doing it and then there's going to be a tipping point um where your business takes off to the point where you're going to hit you're going to make that decision like hey man if i keep going to work doing this working for somebody else i'm holding myself back now right and that's the way it was with me in the military that that tactical business took over my life by you know by accident 
And, you know, my intention when I started was just to sell some gear to my friends and stay 20 years in the SEAL teams and retire out and then have my little shop in Imperial Beach. And it blew up into something way bigger than that. And I was just there and seized the opportunity. Whereas most people was like, nah, man, I don't want to grow. I'm afraid. I'm this. I'm that. And they and they talk themselves out of being successful, you know. And you're doing every, all the right shit, and you're going to be rewarded for that. You know what I mean? Yeah, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely, dude. Yeah. So, hey, Chris. So, is there any um, website, social media, anything you would want the audience to uh, to go to where they can check you out and kind of keep up with you? Yeah, so my my Instagram account is how I do all of my communication. I really don't I don't do like email blasts and things like that. Um, but it's uh, Chris Osman Designs is my Instagram, um, and then it's it's my personal slash business account. So I do you know it's just me like who you hear here on this uh, this podcast you know rings true with with that. So it's not just business and like hey check out this buy this, but it's more of like my you know stuff that I do every day and my thoughts. Uh, throughout the week, and then plus, obviously, the business stuff is thrown in on there. Um, the website is chrisosmondesigns.com, which is being rebuilt right now. So the new website will probably launch in the next two to three weeks. So, but you know, things are going good, man. And you know, hopefully, everybody will check us out, and I'll get some more followers, and we'll just keep marching to the beat of my own drum. Yeah, definitely, brother. And, and I, I want to thank you for taking out the time to come on here and doing this. And, um, you know, I, I know you said you hate it before, but I also want to thank you for your service as well. Oh, thank you very much. I don't, I don't mean in the sense of like I hate it, like I don't like it. I'm saying is what I hate is that you, people are going out of their way to thank people just because they served. And right. trust me, man, it's, you know, not all services the fucking same. I can tell you that. And, you know, I, I don't think that it should be a, a crutch and the, the world doesn't owe us anything. And it is, we owe everybody else. And that's that's how I feel about it. Well, that, but, that's th- a, but thank you very much. No, no yeah, worries, but thank man. you very much. All right, brother. Well, just th- again, thank you for doing this. You know, I appreciate you taking out the time and, and coming on here. And I know absolutely is going to really appreciate this. Yeah, thank you guys very much for listening, man. I really appreciate it. I had a great time talking to Chris. You know, especially when we talked about the transition process and some of the advice he had for veterans getting out of the military or planning to get out the military. You know, we'd hope that people can take some lessons from that and and plan accordingly, and and then as a result have a better transition process. It was also very interesting for me, especially to to hear him talk about the entrepreneur side of of his life and uh, studying business and what that's like and and what it's like to be successful as opposed to the nine to five type of daily grind that most people uh, go through. So with that, we'll close out this week's podcast. We have some very, very, very good episodes uh, lined up for you guys. Some really interesting individuals. Uh, My website is globalrecon.net. My Instagram account is igrecon. The second account is Black Ops Matter. Uh, Check out my co-host and friend, Chancel Taylor, former British Army combat medic on mission underscore critical on Instagram, on Facebook. Her page is Battle Worn, the Memoir of a Combat Medic in Afghanistan. That's also the title of her book. It was a very good book. I recommend that you guys check it out. Uh, my Facebook account is FB Recon. My Twitter account is IG Recon. I'm on LinkedIn, just as Global Recon. As always, we encourage you to subscribe. Uh, 
uh, share, download these episodes with your friends and family. Leave a comment. Uh, leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And that way we'll continue to bring you guys high-quality content every week. And um, like I said, we got some good episodes lined up, so we'll see you in a couple of days. Peace.